0: Thank you, Perry, and thank you, worship team. Gosh, we worship a God that loves to bring dead things back to life. Amen? Amen? Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. And if you've got one of our Bibles, it's on page 1078. If you don't own a Bible, or if you've just got a Bible that's really outdated and old, and you need a new Bible, This is our gift to you. Please take it home with you. Ephesians chapter 1. As we look at this passage today, we're celebrating the resurrection. And we're celebrating a hope that we've been called to. We're celebrating something so amazing that it, it, it will bring you through the greatest storms in life. In fact, Peter, in his letter, calls it a living hope because we... Celebrate a living Savior. We celebrate Jesus, who is not dead, but who is alive. And it's a reminder that one day we will rise. And for all of eternity, we will be with our living Savior. We will go to heaven, and we will feel more alive than we've ever felt before. And that is something for us to celebrate I pray that we would never take that hope for granted. I pray that today God would move in our hearts and we would think more and desire heaven more. As believers, if we're honest, it's easy for us to be so captivated by the world that we live in that often we barely even think about eternity. But I want to take a, just a, a minute to think how foolish that is of us to do that. I mean, it would be like, as a believer, if we're never thinking about heaven, if we're never thinking about eternity, it'd be kind of like if you were engaged, but not thinking about marriage. It'd be kind of like Alex and Jenny, in their engagement, saying, hey, look, we, you know what? We just like to be engaged. I think we're just going to stay engaged forever, you know? <laughs> No, you don't think that way. Because engagement is designed to prepare you for something in the future. It's designed to prepare you for marriage. This life that we're living now is designed to prepare us for eternity. And so if we're a believer and you're never thinking about eternity, it's like you're a week away from graduating high school and yet you're not thinking about what's happening after graduation. You're not thinking about your future. Your schooling is designed to prepare you for the future. If you're a believer and you're not thinking about eternity, it'd be like you driving in a U-Haul to your new home that's in another state, and you're not thinking about your new home, your new place that you're going to be living. You, you just decided, you know what, I, li- I kind of like driving. I'm just going to keep on driving, right? It, just, it doesn't make sense. It's foolish to think that way, and I could give you a hundred other examples, but that so if we're honest, that's what we tend to do. We, in fact, we, instead of putting our hope in eternity, instead of thinking about heaven often, we put our, our hope in things that are just fleeting. We put our hope in like the perfect marriage, right? And we realize that eventually you get to marriage and the honeymoon is great, but then the honeymoon ends and you realize that marriage is work and it's challenging at times. Or maybe right now, some of you, if you're in school, you're putting your hope in summer vacation, you're, I mean, and especially if you're a teacher, I've been there. Okay, that last week of school as a teacher—I mean, you're just there to you're surviving, and the only thing that gets you through is summer vacation. And but the reality is, summer vacation only lasts—well, for us because we've missed so much school, it's only going to last a few weeks. It seems like. Often, we put our hopes in things that are just fleeting. If you put your hope in having the perfect marriage, or having the perfect family or that perfect job, or having the perfect kids, eventually you're setting yourself up for disappointment, right? And so in this passage today, the Apostle Paul reminds us of a hope that will never fail, that will last forever. It's a hope that is so powerful that it can hold you up in the midst of the worst of storms. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he understood the storms of life. In fact, literally, he'd been through a shipwreck. And as he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, he's in a Roman prison. He knows about the storms of life. In fact, it's pretty ironic that the Apostle Paul is writing from prison because he he couldn't stop sharing about it his faith in christ that's why he was in prison which is pretty ironic if you think about it he was before he was paul he was saul he was a pharisee who went and pursued christians to persecute them to throw them into prison but then he met and had an encounter with the with jesus who he thought was dead and that radically transformed his life sent him in a different direction now he can't stop talking about jesus he can't stop telling people about the resurrection and it doesn't matter what it costs him and so that's why he's in prison now writing this le- letter. And as he writes this letter, you're going to see that he's, he's in love with this church. He, he's got a particular affection for this church. He sees their faith. He sees their love for one another. He prays for them often. I, I, and I love how he starts this letter off. He starts it out with just worship. He's praising God. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He uses that word blessed three times in one sentence, and he goes on to list some of the blessings that we have as believers in God, that, that God has chosen us before the foundations of the world, that he's predestined us to be adopted into his family, that in him we have redemption through the The blood of Christ, that our sins are forgiven. He's lavished this grace upon us and he's made known the mystery of his will. And he's given us an inheritance. He's given us this inheritance that's been sealed by the Holy Spirit and guaranteed. And so the praise of his glory. And so that's how he starts this letter off. That's the backdrop that we have as we walk into verse 15, which is where we're going to start today. And so before we walk through this prayer that he has for the church in ephesus, let's let's pray ourselves one more time. Bow your heads with me. Father, we recognize that apart from your spirit, these words will just be words, and they will have very little meaning to us. And so I pray and I plead with you that your spirit would infiltrate our hearts, enlighten the eyes of our hearts, give us Wisdom and discernment to understand what's going on in this text. And I pray that your words, not not my words, but your words would give a hope to us that is not fleeting, but that will sustain us in the midst of trials. Because apart from your hope, life is miserable. And so I pray that your words would give us life and would give us hope now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, look at this prayer that Paul has for this church. This prayer is not just for them, it is for us also today. He says in verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And really, before I even go through this prayer, l- let me remind you that he is writing to the church. He is writing this to believers. This prayer is for believers. And, if, and so if you're here today and you're not a believer, I'm glad you're here. I prayed that you would be here so that you would hear this prayer, that you would, you would see and the treasure that you're missing out on, the treasure that is available to you if you would only believe. But if you are a believer, I think this should, and this is really, if if you walk out of here with anything, this is what I want you to walk out. This is how we should pray for one another. Often when we pray for one another, we only pray for one another when we're in a crisis. But that's not Paul's prayer here. We should pray for one another when we're in crisis. Don't get me wrong, but his prayer is much different here. This is how we ought to pray for one another. Verse 17, that the God ...of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called, which He has called you, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints... And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in his heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Gosh, this this prayer is so, so rich, and I want to walk through it slowly because I want us to just enjoy this passage. I mean, there is so much in this passage that gives life and hope if we will grasp hold of it. And so this is why we, we pray that God would open and enlighten the eyes of our heart because unless that happens, we won't fully see the significance of this passage. So let's walk through this. Verse 17 again, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, don't get tripped up and think that Paul is implying here that Jesus is not God. Okay, when he says that, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ you got to remember, Jesus is the second part of the Trinity. And so he's basically, this is kind of like saying that, okay, I'm a pastor here at Mercy Hill, but you know what? The other pastors here are my pastor also. So Scott and Perry are my pastors. And so that's essentially the same thing that he's saying here, that God the Father is Jesus' God. Jesus is still 100% God, but God the Father is his God. And so don't let that phrase distract you from what the main request of the prayer is, which is found right there. That God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And so Paul here is asking God to give this church the spirit, which is kind of weird that he asks that because earlier when he's worshiping in the beginning of the letter, he's already said that they have the spirit. The spirit is sealing them. He's sealed their salvation, their, their inheritance. And so why does he ask for the Spirit for them again? Why, why do they need the Spirit when they already have the Spirit? It's because that the Spirit doesn't just seal us, it sanctifies us. In other words, the Spirit also helps us to understand. The Spirit also helps us to be transformed into the image of Christ. The Spirit helps us to desire God more, to see the significance of this passage, this prayer. And notice that the the Spirit is involved in both the, the mind and the heart. He's the Spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him. That's the head. But He's also the one who enlightens the eyes of our hearts. And the heart is where our desires come from. And so Paul is pleading that God would cause the Spirit to help them comprehend more of God in their mind and that he would also help their hearts desire God more. That's his main prayer, because that doesn't come naturally to us. We need God's help for that to happen. This is a prayer that we should often be praying for ourselves, and we should often be praying for the people in this church, your church family, the people around you. And so why is this prayer so important? Look at the next part of the passage it's important because it's the key to hope. This is what activates our hope. If you've got a TV but you never turn it on, there, there, there's no power to it. It doesn't do you much good, right? And so we need God to send His Spirit to activate the hope that's available to us. It's God giving you His Spirit of wisdom and revelation and enlightening the eyes of your heart so that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called. And so often when we talk about hope, when we think about hope, and we, we speak of hope, it's usually just in the, in the context of us just having wishful thinking, right? That's, that's hope in our world. We, maybe you said things like this when you were in school, like, I hope that I get a good grade on this test, even though I haven't studied for it, right? Okay? That's, ki- that's kind of hope we think of, or, or right now I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that my two-year-old will take a long nap this afternoon. Right, some of you are thinking that right now, amen. Right, and so, or, or maybe maybe if you're a, a Louisville fan, you're 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 hoping that the football team maybe wins a couple games this this season. That, that's wishful thinking, right? But that that's I'm sorry, that's not the hope. That's not the hope that we see in the Bible, though. Okay, the, the hope that we see in the Bible is not wishful thinking. And if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. This is the definition of hope that we see in the Bible. Hope is having a certainty in what God has promised will happen. Hope is having a certainty in what God has promised will actually happen. It's not simply a desire for something good to happen. Biblical hope is having a confident expectation of what God has promised will become reality. That's biblical hope. And so Paul is not praying for you to have wishful optimism. Okay? He is praying for your hearts to be fully assured and fully captivated by this certainty that what Christ has said and what he has promised will actually happen. Again, Paul, he's writing from prison, right? He knows how harsh this world can be. He knows that this church that he's writing to is going to go through difficult times. He knows that some of these Christians that he's writing to, they're going to lose everything. Everything that is humanly possible to lose, they are going to lose. But he also knows from personal experience that even if you lose everything that is humanly possible for you to lose, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There is hope that is available. This is why his heart can worship God from the prison cell. His heart has been fully captivated by the blessings that he knows he will one day have in Christ Jesus. Look back through that list at the beginning of the chapter. These are the blessings that we should put our hope in. Verse 4, that you've been chosen by God before the foundations of the world. In other words, God has initiated all of this. He's initiated the relationship. He loved you first before you ever loved him. We bring nothing to the table when it comes to salvation. It is all God. It is for his glory that we are saved. Verse 5, he's predestined us for adoption as sons in Christ Jesus. And so he could have forgiven our sins and saved us and turned us into servants like the angels, and that would have been grace. But he goes beyond that, doesn't he? He adopts us as his own children. Loves us in that way. And in verse 7, we see that the adoption was not cheap, that we were redeemed by the blood of Christ. If you um, watched The Passion of the Christ on Friday, you were reminded of what it cost Christ to save us from our sins. What the, the penalty that he paid, that on the cross he absorbed the full wrath of, Of God that we deserved, and then in verse eleven we we see that in Him we've obtained an inheritance because of what He has done for us, and that verse fourteen that that inheritance is sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is praying that God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see and to understand these truths, so that our hearts would be fully captivated by them. So that no matter what the circumstances that we go through, we would find hope. Paul prays this because it doesn't come naturally to us. We need to pray for God to help us to see the significance. These blessings are amazing only if the Spirit has opened and enlightened the eyes of our hearts. That's why this prayer is so important. Do you pray this for one another? Do you pray this for yourself? Do you pray this for your kids? I want you to recognize that hope is not something that you simply drum up inside of yourself. You need God to enlighten the eyes of your heart. First of all, to to the hope that you've been called to, but secondly, look there, to see the riches of the glory of of the inheritance that he's promised to pour out on you. That's significant. Peter describes this inheritance in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God of And Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Let's think about heaven for a little bit, right? We ought to be thinking about it way more than we do. The inheritance, that's everything that God has promised to us in heaven. For all of eternity, we'll enjoy His presence. There'll be no more sin, no more evil, no more pain, no more shame, no more suffering, no more worrying, no more cancer, no more heart disease or divorce, no more death, no more saying goodbye to loved ones. No more house payments or bills. No more worrying about how your kids are going to turn out or whether or not they're safe. No more fear. There will only be love and joy and peace in the presence of God for all of eternity. We should think about that often. It will never perish, it will be never, never be defiled, it will never fade. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, Paul writes, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us, for us, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. In other words, they're fading. But the things that are unseen are eternal. See, these first century Christians, they were were losing everything. They were being persecuted. They were were being burned at the stake. They were being fed to lions. And yet Paul is able to say that those afflictions are light and momentary. In fact, they're preparing you for something great. Why? Because he compares them to the riches of the glorious inheritance that awaits all those who believe in Jesus Christ, who are called to that hope. Paul is praying that the eyes of their, their hearts would be enlightened so that they would have a clear vision of the riches of the glories of heaven. Uh, Randy Alcorn wrote a a pretty amazing book on heaven. If you haven't picked that up, I would highly encourage you to to read through it. He goes through the, uh, what does the Bible actually say about heaven? It is so healthy for you to dwell on what God has promised us in heaven. That's why it's so healthy for you to come and gather and worship together on a regular basis, to, to be reminded because it is so easy for our hearts to be captivated by things of this world, for us to put our hope in what, what seems like good things. Okay, It's not bad for you to hope in a, in a new job or it's not bad to, to hope that, that your, your kids turn out good. But ultimately, those those things are fading and, and they're going to disappoint you. Your kids are going to disappoint you. Your job, even the perfect job, is going to disappoint you. We should spend off we often should spend time reminding one another and reminding ourselves of the future hope that we have in heaven. Well, in verse nineteen, there's a third reason he prays, This prayer that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. He wants them to see clearly what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe according to the work of his great might. And he goes on to describe the immeasurable greatness of God's power in in numerous ways. He uses numerous synonyms to describe this power. And then he goes on to say, look, this power is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. This power is the same power that, that seats Jesus at the right hand of the Father. It's the same power that places Jesus in a position of total authority above every name, not just now, but forevermore. It's a power to put all things under his feet. It's a power to give Jesus as a head over all things to the church. And so Paul is praying for their hearts to know God's power in their lives. It's a prayer that this church would desperately need to hear as they faced all sorts of trials and persecutions, significant persecution. And we know, if you're sitting here, you, you know that this is a prayer that we need still today. When you face trials, or when you face temptation, it's so easy to doubt that God has the ability to help you in that situation. In fact, I'm, I'm willing to guess with as many visitors as we have here today that some of you have come in here today, you're, just, you're at the end of your rope, and you are looking for any just taste of hope. And you wonder, can God do anything? Does does God even care? To which Paul says, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is working for you, and if you're a believer, it is working in you. You have the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead in you. Think about this mercy hill. There is a death-conquering power working in you and for you. Do you believe that? When you ask, Lord, is is there a power that can liberate me from the bondage of and you fill in the blank there, whatever you're struggling with, is there a power that can liberate me from the bondage of? alcohol, or lust, or anger, or depression, or whatever it is, is there a power, or is there a power that can get me through this trial that I'm going through right now, where I feel like everybody is out to get me, or I feel like I don't know how I'm going to get through even this next week. I don't know where the money is going to come from. Is there a power that will get me through this trial? The answer is that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and placed him at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and which has granted him to be the ruler over everything for the sake of the church, is at work in you right now. The power of God is not just for your salvation, it's for your sanctification. It is there for you and is working in you right now. We celebrate a God who loves to bring dead things back to life. No matter how far you've wandered, He has the power to bring you back. No matter what trial you are facing, He has the power to get you through it. And recognize that Often the miracle is not that he pulls you out of the trial, it's that he helps you through the trial. Even if you've lost everything that is humanly possible to lose in this life, nothing can separate you from the love of God and the power of God in Christ Jesus. And the Apostle Paul wants us to believe that. And so he prays that you may know deep down in the most inner parts of your soul that you would know what is the hope to which you've been called, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. And so imagine a church that is fully bought into this, that is fully bought into praying this for one another. I mean, I imagine a church that that shines with a hope that radiates into the community in amazing ways, that that people will will come and see that, okay, these are real people going through real problems, and yet there's something different about them. That's what drew me to Christianity. When I went to college, I mean, I grew up in church my whole life, and I've said this before. Many of you have heard this story, but I grew up in church my whole life, and, and yet the gospel just wasn't significant to me. And when I got to college, God enlightened the eyes of my heart, and he opened up, and it was, th- but it was, this is how it happened, is because I saw people that were going through the same trials that I was going through, and yet there was something different about them. There was a peace that they had. There was a joy that they had that I recognized I did not have that. And God used that to open the eyes of my heart to see my need for a Savior. And when I trusted in Christ and I I, I started to recognize that all these promises are true for me, it radically transformed me. And he is still radically transforming me. And even now, 20 years later, God is still enlightening the eyes of my heart to see more and more the hope that is available to me, preparing me for eternity. I pray that same thing. Can you imagine a church that, that, that shines with that kind of hope and radiates in the community? I imagine a church that is so captivated by the riches of heaven that we become just radically generous because we recognize that the riches of this world mean nothing compared to the riches of heaven. And so we just give it all away. I imagine a church that boldly proclaims the gospel Because that's where, and this is what Jesus says, he he says, I I will give you power to be my witnesses, right? Uh, I, I imagine a church that's praying this prayer for one another that goes out and is unashamed about sharing that there was a dead guy that came back to life. And he is my Savior. And he can give you hope that you can't even imagine. And so if you've come here today and you're not a believer, I want this hope for you. And I want to tell you what your family that has brought you here desperately wants you to to hear, that your hope is only found in Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no hope. And to see the significance of this hope, to see the significance of the cross, you need to to first recognize that you're a sinner in need of forgiveness. Apart from recognizing that you have rebelled against God, you will not see your need for Jesus Christ going to the cross. And once you recognize your need for a Savior, what happens is the resurrection begins to be precious to you because you see that in the resurrection, God proved his power and proved that all the promises that he has made will come true and that one day you will share in that resurrection, that you will be raised to spend eternity with him. And if you place your trust and what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross, and you stop trusting in yourself, and you stop putting your hope in things of this world, if you put your hope in Him, He promises that everything we've talked about here in Ephesians chapter 1 is yours to look forward to. I pray that God would open your eyes to see the significance of the good news that we've been reading about and talking about. That He offers, through the resurrection, not wishful thinking, but certainty, that the riches of God's promise, that His inheritance awaits you, if you would only believe. There's a certainty that God has given us, that, that there's an immeasurable power that's offered to you, to transform you, that no matter how far you've gone, He's waiting for you, calling you, offering forgiveness. And he offers it to you right now. And so, if God has been opening up the eyes of your heart this morning and you recognize your need for forgiveness, I pray that you would turn from your sins and you would turn towards Christ. And if he's working in your heart in that way, I'm going to be in the back here in just a minute. I would love to celebrate with you. I would love to pray with you. I would love to encourage you and just talk about, okay, what's next? Today, if you've got questions about salvation or, or about church or, or, or baptism or membership or anything, don't leave today until you get the chance to get those questions answered. Uh, if you're a visitor with us and you haven't got, there's a, there's a mug uh, as a gift to you and there's a Connect card that will get you connected to our our, uh, newsletter. I would encourage you to fill that out and get it back to myself or or somebody else here that you know. Uh, In a minute, we're going to celebrate communion together. And this is something that we do every single week. This is for believers. It's an opportunity for us as believers to be reminded of what Christ did for us on the cross, that he paid for the sin that we that's in our hearts, and and because he paid for it, he absorbed the wrath of God, and so the bread represents his body, the juice represents his blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. So there's three stations, there's two up front, there's one in the back. And this is also a time for us to, because of the hope we have, to, to give generously. If you're a visitor, don't feel obligated. This is how we make the mission move forward, so that others can hear about the hope that is offered through the gospel. And so I'm going to pray, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. And then after everybody's gone through the line, we're going to stand, and we're going to worship together because he is worthy of our worship today because we worship a God who loves to bring dead things back to life. So let's pray together, and then we're going to worship. Father, I thank you for the hope that you offer. And I pray right now, especially for those in this room, that... You are opening their eyes. I pray that You would enlighten the eyes of all of our hearts, that we would know fully the hope that You've called us to, the inheritance, the riches of the inheritance in heaven that You have promised us and that we would know the power, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is working in us. And I pray for those who are struggling because of circumstances in their, in their lives right now, that they would see the hope and the joy that is offered, no matter what circumstances that they are going through. I pray that they would trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. You come as God is calling you to respond.